As y'all can see, there are slim pickings at the pulpit today. Um, even funnier is the fact that we have Colby Dorsley on staff, like, and still you end up with me. And Colby's here, like he's back there. He's in the room, he's here. Um, so I definitely feel a, a little inadequate, a little unqualified, but I hope y'all are there with me. I, uh, I feel like I have something to say. The question is, uh, can I say it? And so hopefully I can. I miss concerts. I think top three things that I miss about life pre-COVID, concerts are definitely one of them. I love almost everything about concerts. I love looking for my seat, looking at the ticket, trying to find where in the venue I'm sitting. The anticipation and the suspense of, did I buy good seats this time? Will my wife like the seats? Will the sound be good in my seats? Will I have a good view of the band from my seats? I love the suspense of when the lights go down, the band walks out, the music starts, the lights come back up, they say, hello, Knoxville, or wherever you are, and you realize, like, this is it. I love that. I miss it. I love the, I love the impromptu jam sessions when you have some of the best musicians in the business and they're just playing off the cuff. They're just jamming. Feels like you're watching something new happen before your eyes. I love when uh, at the end of the jam session somebody breaks out with that hook of that one song that you came for and the crowd goes wild. The radio single or something, it comes up. I think the thing I love most about concerts though is the sense of togetherness that it brings. I don't know if you've ever felt this way at a concert, but I feel like whenever I'm at a concert, I feel like I have this bond with everybody else who's there. Um, I've heard a lot of people describe seeing Garth Brooks live in this way. I haven't personally seen him live. Um, but like this idea that like the person, you know, two rows down from me, like I might get in a bar fight with him next Friday, but today we're brothers. I love that about concerts, man. There's something about it. I don't know. Um, but maybe I'm over romanticizing music. Maybe music's not your thing. Um, and I think you can feel that feeling of oneness outside of music. I think at sporting events, you definitely can feel it. Playing on a team um, in some kind of sport, you can definitely feel it. Anything where people are coming together for a cause outside themselves, I think that unity is possible. And those moments of unity, those moments where it's like, we're different, but we're the same, those, I think, are glimpses of heaven. Um, I think we can do some work to recapture that in the church. We're in the middle of this We is Greater Than Me series. Uh, Mark and Brock have done a great job so far at kicking this, uh, this series off. I would highly recommend going back and listening to the past two weeks of sermons. Um, but if you haven't heard those, let me give you a quick recap of why we're even talking about this, why unity is an issue that we need to discuss. Currently, the, the global Christian church is the most divided, fragmented group um, in the world. There's not a close second. We're the most divided faith group in the world. We have more denominations, more factions than anybody else. On top of that, many of those factions see all other factions as heretics. Um, many churches here in the States who believe the same things about God see one another as competitors rather than allies. The devastating thing about this is it totally destroys our witness and our authenticity with the world. The world's come to view the church of Christ, that he came 
left heaven's throne for, to come and redeem and die for and raise for. The church sees us not as his body, not as his primary vehicle of effecting change and bringing his kingdom about in the world, but rather they see us as an absolute joke. And it's devastating. It's devastating to our witness. A lot of churches, the church globally has become more known for division than for love. It's heartbreaking on top of that because Jesus himself prayed in the passage uh, in the high priestly prayer. It's, you'll probably hear it read a lot through this series. It's John chapter 17. He prays that we would all be perfectly one with one another, just as he and the Father are one. He says in John 13, when he gives us the new commandment to love one another, he says, love one another as I've loved you. This is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples. That's how the world knows, is how we love one another, how we treat one another within the church. It's a big deal. It was a big deal for Jesus. It should be a big deal for us. So suffice it to say, change is needed. It's something worth talking about. And I highly recommend, if you haven't listened to the past two weeks, go back and listen to those um, and roll with us through this series and see where it takes us. So they've asked me to speak today about the relationship with, between worship and unity in the church. Um, I think, and I think the Bible reflects this, that worship is a pathway to unity within the church. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, I want to talk a little bit about what exactly we mean when we talk about worship. If you've heard me speak here before, this is review, this is stuff I've shared before. But when we look at worship biblically, when you go through the Bible, when you see scenes of worship, most often it, it involves gratitude. People coming together, thanking God for his faithfulness, for his provision, for his mercy. If we come in here and we sing the songs and we're not thankful for what Jesus has done for us, I think we're definitely missing something. So gratitude's a big component of it. Um, more so than that, though, I think worship, as modeled in the New Testament, um, is the idea of giving, attributing worth to God appropriately. Our word for worship, the English word, comes from an older English term, that is pronounced worth-ship. And the root word of that is the word worth. This idea of attributing worth to something, showing how much something is valued. Um, if I buy something, implicit in that transaction is me declaring that that thing that I bought is worth the amount I paid for it. Um, if I go to a movie theater, RIP, and spend $8 on a Coke, I'm saying implicitly in that transaction that in that moment, to me, that Coke is worth at least $8. Um, in the same way with worship, I think attributing worth to God ought to cost us something. See, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And in his joy, he went and sold all his possessions so that he could buy that field. Whatever you lay down, whatever earthly things within yourself that you lay down that you might gain Christ, that thing that you're laying down, that act of sacrifice, that is worship. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 12, 1, that um, he urges us, um, in view of God's mercies, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. Um, in the Old Testament, worship looked like sacrificing an animal on the altar. The New Testament, Paul says, you're, you're the one who's crawling up on the altar. Um, you're the one who's getting up there sacrificing yourself. There are things that are earthly in us that we need to lay down, and we're going to cover that in the text. 
if we come in and we sing the songs, and the songs are definitely a part of it, don't get me wrong. Biblically, um, music is definitely tied to worship, um, and the musical vehicle is, is really integral to that. But it's more about the sacrifice than the songs. If we come in and we aren't laying down our own pride, our own arrogance, our own lusts, our own anger when we're worshiping, if we're not actively doing that, then I think we're missing a lot of it. So from here on out, when we talk about worship, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that act of gratitude, laying down what's earthly in us, taking up what's heavenly, uh, the attributes of Christ that he's, that he's imparting to us. Let's go ahead and open the word together. Um, the text that we're going to be spending the rest of our time in is Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to do the first 16 verses. So the question is, how can worship lead to unity? I think Paul outlines a pretty good three-step process, um, and we're going to cover that. I remember one musical uh, experience, concert, or whatever you want to call it, that I went to. In college, I went to the Passion Conference, if you're familiar. It's a huge conference of college students. It's known for they bring in the best worship bands, the best speakers in the world, um, huge amounts of people. The year that I went, it was held at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, which seats, I think, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and I distinctly remember at that experience, you'll notice that when I was talking about concerts, I said I love almost everything about concerts. The things that I don't like about them are parking, lines, things like that. The Passion Conference was no exception. Um, when I went there, uh, parking was an absolute nightmare. Getting into the venue was a nightmare. People got on my nerves. Um, the same people that I felt this common bond with, I was, uh, you know, like saying bad things about under my breath walking into the venue. I remember um, noticing one night that, uh, that when I was focused on the, on the earthly things around me, like finding a place to park, trying to get to the seats and all that, trying to fight through lines, um, I had resentment toward all the other people who were gathered there in the name of Jesus. But when we were worshiping, I had this bond with them. And I think it's a matter of perspective. I think when my eyes were focused above, my, my opinions, my thoughts about my neighbors changed. And so I think Paul speaks to this in this passage in the first part. Let's go ahead and read it. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 16. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a, has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, 
put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So this passage of Scripture is three paragraphs long. We're going to break it down paragraph by paragraph. The first paragraph is a call by Paul to change our focus, to change our perspective. Just like me at the Passion Conference, he's saying, set your minds on things above. The second paragraph is when he starts saying that we need to lay down the old self. We need to lay down the earthly things that are in us. He says we need to put those things to death. And then also in the second paragraph, he talks about how we're supposed to put on these Christ-like attributes. The final paragraph is talking about all the heavenly traits that we should be putting on actively as Christians. And then at the end of the third paragraph, this all culminates in a picture of unity. The church being united in one body and in perfect harmony. So let's tackle the first paragraph first. It's all about perspective. I think we wouldn't be so focused on our disagreements if we were more focused on Jesus and who he is and his faithfulness and his goodness. If our eyes were constantly up on him, we wouldn't be so focused on what's going on around us. We're united when God and what he has done is the hero of all of our stories. When we can't stop bragging on him, when we're boasting in the cross constantly, it's hard to be disunited when that's our perspective. I think this is why worship can put us on a pathway to unity, because it puts us in a posture of submission. It's really hard to be self-righteous when you're in a posture of submission. Worship puts us down on our knees. It casts our eyes upward. If you're praising the king, it's hard to argue with somebody while you're doing that. I think it's as simple as that. Now, make no mistake, um, as we go through this series it's important to know that unity in the church would be a flat-out miracle. I mean, getting the global church, people within the church to get along in the way that Jesus prayed for, miracle. Just like parting the sea, just like raising the dead, it can't be done by human hands. It's something that only the Spirit of God can do. But just like Peter when he was walking on the waves, we lose our ability to achieve the miraculous when we take our eyes off of Jesus. That's why Paul says, set your eyes on things above. If we want to achieve this miraculous vision of unity, we've got to fix our eyes on Christ. If you find yourself in cycles where you can't get past a disagreement that you have with a brother and sister in Christ, um, maybe, it's, uh, maybe you find yourself unable to love someone the way that Jesus asked us to because of some secondary theological disagreement or a political disagreement, or a social disagreement, or differing leadership styles, or anything like that, I think it's important to change your focus and to focus harder on Jesus. A lot of us in here probably have left churches at some point because of disagreements like those. Um, it's probable that somebody in this room right now is somebody that you will eventually have a disagreement like that with. Maybe there's somebody in the church right now that you just don't see yourself ever getting along with. Odds are, if you don't see eye to eye with that person on that particular issue now, you probably won't ever see eye to eye with them on that issue. But 
in spite of that, I think biblical, self-sacrificing, agape kind of love between people like that is not only possible, but it's commanded by the Scripture. See, unity is not coexisting until one of the disagreeing, until one of the disagreeing parties just changes their mind. It's not pretending that the issues aren't there. It's placing, it's placing the cause of unity and the love of Christ above our own personal agendas and opinions. Francis Chan says this in uh, his book, Until Unity, which a lot of our staff is going through. I highly recommend the book. Um, he says this, too often we fixate on our disagreements. And we feel like we can't worship with such big elephants in the room. We don't see that God is infinitely larger than our elephants. He is so worthy of our attention and praise, even if we sit amid a herd of elephants. I think he's right. Worship can accomplish unity when we fix our eyes on him, when we realize that he's bigger than whatever separates us. What if our disagreements are actually tools that God can use? What if the fact that you see something differently than I do means that you can reach people that I can't? What if, the, what if our disagreements is, are something that God can redeem, that he can use for his kingdom? I think he uses everything else. Why not, the, why not the things that we disagree on? I think there are probably a lot of people in heaven who, uh, who disagreed on a lot of things. And at the moment in heaven right now, I'd say that their disagreements are the last thing on their mind. It's possible for us too. Let's go to the second paragraph. Verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He lists off several things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I struggle with that last one. Well, really all of them, but especially that last one. Um, verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one, one another. Listen to this. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices... And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. I don't think we need to cover at length all of the things that he says we should be putting to death. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I do want y'all to note, though, in the latter part of verse 9, Paul says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And then in verse 10, and have put on the new self. So we've put off the old self, we're putting on the new self, and then in 11 he says, here, there is no Jew or Greek, Scythian or free, blah, 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 blah. In other words, verse 11, when he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, that's a picture of unity. So he's saying, here, in the new self, there is unity. In other words, if we haven't put off the old self, if we haven't started that journey of sanctification where Jesus is making us more like him, where the Holy Spirit is changing our hearts individually, if we haven't started that process, if we haven't asked God individually, like, hey, Jesus, help me to see people the way that you see them. Help me to become more like you. Holy Spirit, change my heart from the inside out. If we are not on that process, unity is not possible. It has to start with individual heart change. It has to start with you doing the work um, before it can be reflected in a group setting. Let's move on. You guys doing okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay, verse 12, last paragraph. So this is about putting on the new self. 
Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So this third and final paragraph that we're looking at, Paul is urging us to put on the attributes of Christ. Some of the ones he mentions are compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But I want you all to look at verse 13. Look at how much importance Paul attributes to forgiveness. Verse 13, he says, bearing with one another, and if one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. As the Lord has forgiven us, we must also forgive. Mm. I think Paul knew that a church that couldn't forgive would be a church that's robbed of its witness and its authenticity. I think he knew that. I mean, it makes sense after all. How could we take Jesus' unconditional love, his forgiveness, how could we take that for ourselves yet refuse to give it to our brothers and sisters, the ones who we claim to love? It pokes holes in the whole gospel. When we do this, the world sees us like the wicked servant in the parable that Jesus talked about. When he was forgiven an unimaginable, unpayable debt by the king, and then he goes out and puts his brother in a chokehold over pocket change. That's how we look to the world when we can't forgive one another in the church. Verse 14. Notice also how Paul talks about love. He says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he mentions before verse 14, he talks about all these Christ-like attributes, compassion, kindness, humility, etc. And then he says in 14 that love binds all these together in perfect harmony. He says above all put on love, so love is the most important of those attributes, but also it binds all the previous ones together. If love binds all of those other attributes of Christ together, doesn't it make sense that without love they would fall apart? Could it be that Paul is saying that if we don't have love, we won't be able to accomplish any of the things that Jesus has called us to accomplish? We won't be able to have any of the attributes that he's called us to have. We won't be able to do any of the work that he's called us to if we don't love. Jesus said that we're supposed to bless those who curse us. If we're supposed to do that to those who curse us, how much more are we supposed to bear with our brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more are we supposed to bear with the people in church with us? It reminds me of one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. It's also Paul. It's 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Maybe it's time that we in the church, here at Whitestone and globally, what if it's time that we develop a a more robust kind of love? A love that's rooted in the love of Christ, not in ourselves. A love that won't be shaken by differences in opinion because it's based on the eternal king, not our temporal circumstances. Guys, we need to start bearing all things with one another. We need to start enduring all things with one another. If somebody has a complaint against another, we need to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. That's what we're called to. It's the gospel. It's time for us to dig in with one another. Whether it is here or at another church, ultimately, wherever you land, wherever God has called you to serve, whatever body he has called you to plug into, whether it's at Whitestone or anywhere else, my prayer for you is that you dig in with those people. Dig in until it gets weird. Get in a small group. Make sure people know the things about you that people wish that they didn't know. Dig in with people. And dig in long enough where you get past the honeymoon phase and you get to a point where one day somebody does something and you're confronted with the question, do I forgive this person? And when that moment arrives, forgive that person. I've seen a lot of people over the years who see flaws in the church and they decide that those flaws aren't worth staying to try to fix. They they paint those flaws as good reasons to leave the church. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. Like they decide, you know what? Can't get past this. It's a deal breaker for me. I'm just not going to go anywhere. I think that's one of the most destructive things anybody can do to the church. Because if all the people who see changes in the church that need to be made leave the church, then the church is never going to change. If all the change agents leave, change won't happen. It's as simple as that. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. He says, Christians are Christ's body, the organism through which he works. Every addition to that body enables him to do more. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ, who alone can help them. Cutting off a man's fingers would be an odd way of getting him to do more work. I would urge you, if you see... (laughs) Andy's acting like he doesn't have fingers back there, sorry. Sorry. Um, I would point you towards if you see things in this church or in the global church that need to change, be the change. Be the change. We're called to be part of the solution, not just people who point out the problem. Kinsey tells me a story about my father-in-law, Tim, back when he and another group of core people were planning what became this church. Back then it was called Cornerstone Baptist Fellowship. And the colors of the logo that cornerstone, were this god-awful aquamarine, teal kind of color, and maroon. And I guarantee you the only reason that those were the colors is that was like they had two cans of paint left over somewhere in somebody's garage, and it was cheap, and they're like, let's paint the sign, bro. And so Tim is out on the road painting the sign, aquamarine and maroon. Really loud, attention-grabbing. Somebody from the church rolls up on him. It's like, hey, man, who decided those were our colors? Tim 
without missing a beat, responds, the guy with the brush in his hand. <laughs> Classic Tim. To know him is to love him. I think there's a lesson there, though. We think that our primary duty as people within the church is when we see some issue, when we see a problem, whether it's the color of the logo or something greater than that, we think our primary role is to point it out and to question it. Maybe the fact that you see something that needs to change, that nobody else can seem to see, maybe that's God's way of telling you it's time to pick up a brush. It's just like Michael Jackson said, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. It's that easy. <laughs> uh-huh. I can't dance like him, though. That's... Dig in. When you see things that need to change, be the change. Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. I think more and more, the older that I get, that the whole gospel is hung up on whether or not we can do that. This whole process starts and ends with worship. In verses 15 and 16, Paul calls us back to worship. We started with fixing our eyes on Jesus, on things above at the front end of this passage. At the end, we end with gratitude, and he's talking about singing songs together, admonishing each other with wisdom. This is what he says, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Worship puts us on a path toward unity in the church. It makes it possible when we start by fixing our eyes on heaven, on things above, when we lay down the old self and actively take up the new self, and when we're thankful, when we come to God with thankful hearts. When we're thankful for what's been done for us, it's really hard to be nitpicky about how somebody else is working out their walk. I think a lot of times sermons, uh, we, we dig into the word together and we, um, it's hard to practically apply them in real life. And so um, this sermon, if I were to um, try to apply it in my own life, this is how I would do it. I want to share this with you before we finish up. Um, the, the band just played the song, Build My Life. It's one of my favorite worship songs that we have right now. Um, and I have to resist the urge to close every single service with that when I'm leading worship. Um, and the reason for that uh, is because I think that chorus is one of the most ideal prayers to pray as we're preparing as the church to leave the huddle, to go out into the world, hopefully influence some people, hopefully share the gospel with the lost. I think that chorus is just, it's powerful to me. I think it's a great prayer to pray as we're about to adjourn a meeting of the church. The chorus goes like this. It says, holy, there is no one like you. There's none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are. Fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. I think this chorus breaks down in a lot of ways what we've gone through in this passage. If you look at the first three lines, holy, there's no one like you, there's none beside you. Open up my eyes and wonder. That's setting your eyes on things above. Recognizing the supremacy of Christ, how, much, how great he is, how worthy of praise he is. There's no one like you, none beside you. Open up my eyes and wonder. What a prayer. Can you imagine? Can, uh, if, if you could every day... Pray for wonder and God gave it to you. Just give you a glimpse of his face. 
what I wouldn't give to go back to some of the mountaintop experiences in my life and see God as clearly as I did in that moment, what I wouldn't give right now to go back to the top of that parking garage at Fort Sanders where that double rainbow came over the top of the whole city of Knoxville and Mike Hamlin was dead and he was alive across the street, what I wouldn't give to see God the way I saw him that day, what I wouldn't give to see God right now the way I saw him when I was a kid at that VBS and I heard him calling my name, pray for wonder. Open up my eyes and wonder. Jesus, there's none beside you. Set your eyes higher. The next two lines. Show me who you are. Fill me with your heart. That's laying down the old self, putting on the new self. Show me who you are. Show me what you value. Fill me with your heart. Help me to feel what you feel. Help me to see people the way that you see them. Help me to walk in the path that you've laid out for me. I'm laying down what's of me. I'm taking up what's of you. Show me who you are. Fill me with your heart. And then the last line, which is possibly my favorite, he says, lead me in your love to those around me. Remember that Paul said, love binds all those traits together in perfect unity. Lead me in your love to those around me. That's what unity looks like. Walking in love to people who are in the church with us, to people who are outside the church. As we worship, whether it's here corporately, together, or privately, I would urge you to kind of go through these three steps. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Set your eyes higher. Ask him to give you Ask him to give you that sense of wonder. Ask him to share his heart with you. Ask him to lead you where he wants you to go. And then in his love, walk to your brothers, to your sisters, to your neighbors, to the lost. Band, y'all can come back up. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for your church. God, your church is precious in your eyes. You gave your life for her. We should value unity in your church because you valued it first. Help us to be people who worship in a way that draws us closer together and closer to you. Father, help us to lay down the things that are not of you and to take up the things that you're trying to impart to us. Refill us with the wonder of who you are. You're so much better to us than we could ever deserve. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.